What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode has been a long time coming. It's been almost two years since he hijacked Adam Rubin's episode, and now Ossie Wind has an episode all his own. This is a great conversation spanning creativity, consulting, and we spend a large portion of the episode talking about art and an artistic approach to magic. Ossie is an exceptional painter. Many of his paintings are featured in his new book, Repertoire, and his thoughts on magic in relation to painting will linger in your mind as you work on creating your own routines. I know they're already affecting the way that I think about things. I'm so glad we finally got to make an episode, and I know you'll love it. If you haven't already, and I don't know why you haven't, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. If you want to learn magic, cardistry, or a couple of quick bar bets, head over to artofmagic.com. Art of Magic is the premier destination for learning the fundamentals of sleight of hand technique, as well as some of the most advanced magical applications of dexterity in the world. While you're at it, you'll probably need a deck of cards or two, so head over to artofplay.com to get those and whatever else you may need. Art of Play also provides a curated collection of games, puzzles, and other amusements which offer epiphanies for the curious mind. Anyway, get into the episode, and if you have any magic-related questions or comments on the show, let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. You can also reach out to me personally at me at elliotterrell.com. There are three T's in there in the center. This is Aussie Wind. It's an amazing episode and a long time coming. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. So lead the way. We're in it. We're recording. This is the only uh, episode I've ever done over Skype. <laughs> Which is going to be in great quality because we're tricking the system. That's true. We have, we've broken into the matrix and we're beating so, technology. Um, <laughs> how are you, Elliot? I'm doing well. I was just uh, in Michigan for a month with my best friend. Nice. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm doing well. I wanted badly to come out to New York and see you in person and see Derek's show, but I didn't get a chance to do that. Um, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well. I'm keeping busy working. Um, you know, just finished a very long uh, project that uh, is now uh, being shipped to people, and it's it's great. It's uh, it's it's nice to see it, you know. Uh, in the hands of others, and it's 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 a great feeling. And I know it's still people are still waiting for their copies <laughs> and stuff. And and the post office is the slowest thing on the planet. Um, and I hope people are patient enough, uh, and they're gonna get it soon enough and enjoy the book as much as they can. Yeah. What was it like putting the whole thing together? How long have you been working on it? Because I know when I saw you last year, you showed me some of the paintings that you had done for the illustrations. Mm, yes. Well, the the, the half-truth answer is that I've been working my whole life because uh, the, the book is called Repertoire because it's my entire it's it's a big chunk of my repertoire that stretches over twenty years or so, two decades. Mm -hmm. So I could say that yeah, I've been working on this book for twenty years, um, but in in reality, it's a couple three years or so back and forth. Um, you know, a lot of I sit down and wrote, and then stopped and wrote again, and, and you know, to keep the motivation is is very hard. Um, but eventually, you know, when I joined forces with the John Lovick, uh, is my co-writer, 
it, it caught speed and, and then it was about a matter of a year or two that we, we worked nonstop on it on a, almost on a daily basis. Um, basically, a friendship ended after the book. <laughs> we, we stopped. We had nothing to talk about. I said, we have to write another book so we can resume our friendship. Um, it was wonderful. We, we did work a lot, argue a lot, and, uh, but it was a beautiful collaboration. What were you arguing about? Well, um, nothing major, really, but, oh, we should do this. Maybe you should include that. Maybe you should expand here. You should, and John always said, you know, you should write another page on that. Because what happens is it's the curse of knowledge. I know what I want to say, so I automatically complete the sentence or the thought in my head, yeah. but I don't write it. So if people are don't get the so him as an outsider he can say hey okay you're talking about this kind of move explain it or give us a little more information about it yeah and and, and that was you know vital that we we did it that way i think a lot of people underestimate i just hopped onto the forums earlier just to check out you know preliminary reviews of repertoire and most uh, all of the actual reviews I had seen were outstanding, and then everyone oh, else was just complaining about how long it took to get the book. <laughs> Which I know, I know. It, it, look, it's not your fault. That resonates with me deeply. It's not. You know the whole debacle that we had with deal, Derek's book. You, you deal, you deal with that all the time, correct? Yeah. With, with shipping, yes. And shipping is a tricky thing because you're at the mercy of not just post office but also customs. Yeah. So I know there's books held in costumes, and yeah. so it's it's annoying. And 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 I, I explain to people that on my end I'm doing my best to ship it right away and as quick as we can. Uh, but some some of it is not in my hands. But I, I think most people got their books, and there's a small percentage of people that are still waiting. And also uh, because of the pre-orders and all that, we're dealing with a, an overwhelming amount of orders, which is great. You know, it's very flattering and everything but also a lot of ship shipments to deal with and make sure that we don't make mistakes and you know the company that ships it makes mistakes they're humans so yeah, yeah. I, I but just to get back to what i was saying is i think people definitely underestimate how difficult it is to not only write a book but to edit a book and lay out a book yeah. and work with the publisher oh, yeah. and finally get it shipped to people it is a massive undertaking um but I, all that to say, crazy. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much. I'm, 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 I'm proud of it. It's, it's, a, it's like a baby, uh, and you're right. Uh, it, it, the amount of books that I've printed here, and I, I have them all, you know, scratched and edited, and, and I write in them, and, and we did again and again. And the, the amazing proofreaders that we had, I, I'm not going to even try to name them, but there's so many of them, and I, I don't want to offend <laughs> anyone, but. The idea is that there's so much. I'm gonna take this line again. Hey, let me. It's my dog, so let me let me grab him. Hold on. Okay. And I'll take and I'll take it from that line. <laughs> Ozzy stepped away from his computer and took his headphones out, so he doesn't know that I'm talking to you and saying that all of this is gonna stay in. This is my puppy. Oh, he's adorable. He's my the love of my life. Ooh, and he. Every time I neglect him, he, he whines. He wants me to sit next to him. So what, what was it, the, the sentence I uh, said and then... Uh, do you remember? Uh, you were talking about proofreaders. Yeah. And there were too many to name. Proof, there's so many people that I could name um, and think because they really helped make the book better. 
And it's a lot of back and forth and a lot of editing. And you know what else happened that was very interesting? Even though those tricks are tricks that I've been doing for such a long time, mm-hmm. as you write them, you say, hold on, this is a little flawed and that line could be better. And we start making the tricks better. I say, oh, I can add a shuffle here. I can do that. Instead of doing this move, I can also use that. So it's almost like the the, the tricks got upgraded just by writing them down and discussing them. And, and Lavik says, oh, but what if you did this and that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it it was it's a great uh, it was a fun project eventually and I did over a hundred paintings yeah and every time John Lovick would call me and say hey um, I have bad news uh, you might want to illustrate this this and that and that it's five more paintings that I have to do <laughs> now as much as I love painting I was sick of painting hands at that point but it was eventually it's uh, like when you look at it and you flip through it it, it was worth the effort. For sure. How long per painting? It really varies. Um, you know, there's a sentence that says it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Yep. I think the, the, the term was born because the painter said, oh, and you want to include a hand in there and a leg? It's going to cost you more. <laughs> it's like, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So I feel like if it's two hands, it takes more time. If it's one hand, it takes more less time. And if it's only the object, like just just a folded bill on a, on a, so it's less time. But so it depends how much how much I need to paint. But it it really averages between an hour to five hours per painting. Wow. Their watercolors are small, but like not small, nine by six. Um, and 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 I wanted them not to be just illustrations. I want them to to be good enough as paintings. Like there will be painterly and expression, uh, something there. So I, I took it seriously. I did not just, you know, try to finish it. Sure. I did every painting with the same attitude I would have when I paint anything else, you know, so. It's amazing. Um, you mentioned that you. Uh, as you were writing the tricks, you were upgrading them and i find that the best way to really understand or learn something is to teach it and it's it's kind of that same same thing is that when you're putting it down onto paper um you you are inside of it in a way that you're not when you're performing it and then on top of that having lovick to talk to and have his outside inside outside insight outside (laughs) both he did both of those things yeah (laughs) but having his input in and out uh, you know of, of course, affected the way that the tricks were portrayed. How much of your material has been collaboration throughout the years? Um, again, a tricky, a tricky, uh, it's a tricky answer to answer, but I'll give you a global answer. Um, I, I, I said throughout the book that I believe that we're all mutations of the influences and the people that um, we, we admire, like, I want to believe that there's a little bit of um, uh, Johnny Thompson in me, and there's a little bit of um, Tommy Wonder, and a little bit of Juan, and a little bit of Jen Canasta. And, and I, in that sense, there's fingerprints of all of those people that influenced me throughout the years, and then my friends, and the people that I'm close to. And I say, hey, look, I'm working on this, and what do you think? And everybody throws in and out some ideas and, or thoughts, or just ask a question, and I say, oh, interesting. And now, so in, a, in, in essence, there's nothing that is not a collaborative effort because I live in a world where, you know, everything affects me. I even, I, I often say that 
art, the idea of painting, have taught me a lot about magic, indirectly and directly. So, How so? Yeah, so... Um, it's a tough question. Uh, do you have time? Yes. <laughs> it's a long answer. We have plenty of time. Um, so so I, I'll give you a little analogy here that I thought about for a long time. It, one of my favorite painters is Vincent van Gogh. And Vincent painted um, sunflowers, you know, a bouquet in a vase of flowers. And in itself, it's just flowers in a vase. And you know how many artists have done that? Many, many, many people have done that. And there's nothing unique about it. Um, so when you look at this, okay, another bouquet of flowers, big deal. It's called a, it's it's considered a still life. However, when you look at Vincent's work, people look at it and they feel emotion. They're they're they say that's that's really high art. This is beautiful. It's 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 and I feel something. I don't know what it is, but it, because Vincent recorded. His emotions is the state of mind that he was in, and he made a choice with every brush stroke, with uh, with composition, with color, with texture. Uh, he was very thick painter in pasto, we call it. Um, so he basically the emotion is riding over a subject matter that's very trivial, like a still life. So now it's a long analogy, I know, but it's similar to a card trick. Everybody has had a card selected lost and found everybody has done that mm -hmm. i think of it as a still life and every brush stroke in our case every choice you make with the trick scripting uh composing the trick what's the story what's the how does it unfold and the character you bring into it is what could make it an art piece so i just found that you know sometimes people try to put in a very contrived way, emotion or feeling on top of a trick, and they tell you an emotion, but you don't. Sometimes you don't need to. The choices you make, how to present a car trick, in our case, it's a still life, is what's going to create a, a unique uh, piece of magic slash art, whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's it, to me that's uh, that's the sort of analogies that are very hard to explain, but. The thing that I I understood from from art is every magic trick is still life. So again, if we go back to art, you know, many people painted still lives, and they look like studies. They look like a student work, a practice. You know, you say, oh, okay, that looks like a flower, cool, but it doesn't have anything beyond that. There's nothing beyond the paint, mm -hmm. and every piece of car, every every trick that we do as the potential to be art, as the potential to be beyond the still life, beyond the cartridge that we're doing. Do we succeed every time? Nah, probably not. But potentially every piece that we do has um, the potential to become more. You know, sometimes you, you know, Juan talks about all the time, you see the passion of the magician. You see, wow, he's really, he loves his art. He loves what he does. And in a way, through the card trick, they get to know you, mm -hmm. how obsessive you are about it and how seriously you take your art. Um, it, it's not explicit. It's not you say, ladies and gentlemen, I am a magician and I really love my art and I put a lot of time into it. You don't need to say any of that. They see it. They feel it just by the way you handle cards, by the way you communicate with them and, and how 
passionate and you know you're about the truth so so it's it's this kind of uh, again I find it very hard to explain in words you're doing a good job keep so. going <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, if I said it in Hebrew, it would have been way easier. Um, but but, but that's, that's another thing that's very interesting, because uh, lots of artists that I admire uh, refuse to talk about their art or explain their mm-hmm. art. Let's, let's name two, Bursan, for example, uh, one of the greatest photog- uh, street photographers, uh, journalist um, of all time. He hated talking about... His, his art, he says, eh, let the critic do that. I, I'm, I'm, I take photos. And let the photos speak for themselves. I don't need to explain to you what they mean or what you find the experience. I don't want to. And the same thing with Francis Bacon. He was laughing at any person who tries to explain the emotions. In the, he says, this is what... Because art, like a painting, it's, it has its own language, grammar, vocabulary... And very much like Hebrew and English. Like, for example, there's some words in Hebrew that I could never translate to, to English. You can only say it in Hebrew. And in order for you to understand that word, you need to immerse yourself in the culture and, and become, to understand, because language carries, you know, a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of um, process that I went through when I moved to the States. English was not intuitive. And with time, I understood more about how to convey the exact meaning and choose the right word for what I wanted to say. I still struggle with it because, as you can see, it's it's such a deep-rooted thing that only a native English speaker can ever speak English, you know, perfect. I can never do that. I'm I'm actually trapped now when I speak to my friends in Hebrew. I forget words in Hebrew. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, I'm a person who lost his language. I, I have no language. I have nothing. I'm, I'm, in, I'm stuck between two cultures, which is uh, interesting. So That is interesting. How, how, does that, how is that part of yourself reflected in the art that you make? Um, you know, it's, it's the process of unmasking. It's, it's allowing yourself to be less controlled I'll give you an example. Um, my my art teacher, um, Laura Alexander, she hates mentioning her because <laughs> she's a dear friend of mine now. She says, don't call me your teacher, you teach me now. But it's not true. She taught me a lot about art. And she once suggested I use a palette knife to paint a whole painting. And if people who paint, they know that using a palette knife is really not a friendly tool to, to lay the paint on the canvas. It's like tying your hands behind your back and paint with your tongue. I don't know. It's, but because of the restriction, it, it forces you to be less contrived and less controlled. And because of that, more genuinity comes out. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, we become formulaic. We become, once you think you know how to do something and, and you, you, you paint with this confidence, you lose the spontaneity and, and the uh, freedom that a painter needs to paint with. So one of the quotes in the book that I, I talk about, Lucy and Freud, who's one, one of my favorite painters, he says, every painting that he paints, he paints it, I'm re- paraphrasing here, he paints it um, as if it's the first painting he's, he's ever painted. And to be even more explicit, it's the first painting that anyone has ever painted. 
because he wants to approach it with a um a, he wants to approach it with a very uh a, how do you say it like um carefree type of approach like virgin and, and, and innocent because mm-hmm. if you come with the confidence oh i know what i'm doing ah, blah, 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 you're going to produce exactly the same artwork you're never going to push yourself forward you're going to do the same thing that you do maybe badly again and mm-hmm. again but coming with this approach that you know nothing reminding yourself that you're a student reminding yourself you're still exploring you're there's still room to grow that's what allows you to um to expand and that's all I have to say. <laughs> Sometimes I wait because people it's, will start you, to say something else. Have, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I got to the point that I forgot the question because I, it's, that actually illustrates how complex uh, the arts are because, you know, you, you can start exp- answering one question and, and along the way you lost the question and you're, you're, you're ramping about a million things because it's that complex. Do you think that people who have learned and studied art are not as good artists as people who just have a compulsion to create things? Hmm. And I ask because some artists don't like to talk about their art. They don't want to explain away because of a fear that it'll lose the magic. And then the question that that leads me to is, well, what are, what is art losing by not having the conversation? It's a great question. I mean, good art is the kind of art that starts a dialogue that makes people think and 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 and, and discuss. I think the artists that don't want to talk about their art is because they they're afraid to put borders around it. They're afraid to to say. Look at this piece of art. This is what I've meant. So every time you look at it, you should think about that. And because they want people to discuss it, they want it to be very open. So you and I can go to a museum, look at a piece of art, and you say, oh, I feel this, and I think that, and I do this, and I will say something else. And, and maybe another person will walk and think something else. So it's, it's very open, and there's endless interpretations. Mm-hmm. But if the artist said, hey, I painted this because this means to me A, B, and C, now, almost hard to, to, to argue with the guy who created the piece and say, oh, that's what he meant, therefore that's the truth. And maybe, I'm, I'm, this is the first time anyone has ever asked me that, it's a good question, but I think that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid to enco- encops- encapsulate, is it? Yeah, say that? yeah, yeah, encapsulate. In, yeah. So they're afraid to put it into a, a frame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although it isn't a frame. Um, they, they want it to be very open and, and not rigid. And I, and I understand that, you know, because, you know, some people are really afraid to go to museums because they feel like they're supposed to know how to look at art. Uh, and there's some truth to that, but it's not really true because uh, like I have a friend I said oh let's go to an art museum no 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 I, I, don't, I don't want and, and I discovered that he was afraid that he might ask the wrong the, the wrong questions or he might not is if you need to be qualified to look at art yeah. I said no just look at it and whatever you feel think or see then that's what it's supposed to be doing and, and it's interesting so then what about someone who, let's say, 
for let's just create a uh, um, an example, a hypothetical example. There is an artist who technically is phenomenal and whose art invokes strong, willful conversation, but it's very explicit. So uh, uh, this might be a good example. Did you do you remember the big nonsense about Kathy Griffin holding the fake Trump head covered in blood? Yeah, that was a very specific, explicit image that created a lot of "quote unquote" controversy. And I, I didn't mean to sure, get political into into the podcast, but is that a lesser thing because it is it has a very specific point? Nothing is lesser. It's demonstration of some sort. In in we can take two steps back and say, you know what, because you bring something that's very explicit, very strong, and you can agree and disagree with it all day. But some people go and see Pollock, Jackson Pollock in the museum and say, wow, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. The energy and the, the colors, the abstraction is beautiful. And some people go and say, ah, this is bullshit. This is, am I allowed to say bullshit? Yes. There? My you fucking kid could do that. Yeah. exactly there's a film there's a film like that so is that valid yeah both approaches the most democratic uh, my friend's mom said it two years ago she says the most democratic thing in the world is art you can you're entitled to hate it love it uh, accept it deny it argue about it um, and it's acceptable because um you know, there's. I go to. I'm a snob when it comes to art because as I, you know, as I grew up, you know, painting and and, and seeing art, I'm 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 half old fashioned. You know, Francis Bacon is as is is uh, com- contemporary as I get, but I think that um, y- yeah, you 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 build you you find your taste and what you like, and it and that taste can change, expand, you know, whatever. Um, so every, to your question, yes, it's valid. I mean, uh, everybody can do anything they want. Duchamp was the one who, you know, decided that a, a public toilet, you know, is, is a piece of art, a found object. And he, he basically raised the question, what is art? Mm-hmm. Great question. Some people think that, that the, the, the toilet is a piece of art. I don't think so. But I do like his philosophy, and I, I, I listen to interviews with him, and I, there's some books with some interviews with Duchamp, and, and I, I love it. I love the philosophy. I love the thinking. I'm the the art. His art doesn't touch me so much, doesn't move me, but uh, the questions do. So, yeah, for sure. I'm I'm curious about at what point does the artist make. This uh, this may be too uh, circuitous a question. At what point does the artist make the art? So, for example, um, a, a, a phenomenal, well-known, fine artist takes a picture of a toilet and goes, this mm-hmm. is art. And because it's Duchamp, people go, it's art. He did that. It's him doing it. It's art. You know, at what point do you reach the level where the artist surpasses what it is that he makes? So what you're saying is because of his reputation, because of his name, that makes the piece. Yes. And if somebody anonymous did the same thing, nobody would give two shits about yes. it. Um, you know, we I had a conversation, uh, again, with my friend Laura uh, 
a few days ago about when people buy a piece of art, they don't just buy the piece of art, they, they, they buy a, a, a connection, an invisible connection with the artist. And we both agreed about this immediately. Um, it's true. It's true. Like when I look at Lucien's paintings, I immediately think about him, the way he spoke and his fellow. As we said, he records his personality within the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and we respond to that, you know. So I give you a weird example. Uh, if somebody, you know, has a kid and his kid painted something, and he looks at it, it could bring him to tears. My own child made that. And they put it in the fridge and everybody's happy. That's the the exhibition. And, and he's biased. Yeah. The parent is biased because it's his kid who made it. So uh, it, here you have a great example of art and connection to the artist and the meaning that it, it carries around. And we don't need to separate it. You know, it's... Uh, it's all interconnected. It's all one. You know, it's a story. You know, when you when I often say when you go to a museum, the color of the wall, okay, that the museum chose to paint. Sometimes it's white. Sometimes it's gray. Sometimes it's red. And the curator makes those choices, and he also makes another choice, which paintings will go around mm-hmm. it. So when you you go to a museum and you see uh, Vincent next to it and Gauguin uh, next to that. Um, you have a connection there. There were buddies, they sort of, they, until they fought. But there's a connection, there's a, there's a dialogue. And also the temperature of the room, the people you're with, who do you see it with? Uh, what day, you know, how do you feel that day? Do you feel good? Not What's good? the weather outside? All of it is connected. Every, every... Everything is, yeah. And, and now let's go back, because it's a magic podcast. Let's go to magic <laughs> for a sec. The same, everything we say about paintings applies to magic because... Think about your audience. Your audience, every one of them is in a different state of mind. Some of them are recovering from a tragedy. Some of them are happy. Some of them are this. Some of them lost millions of dollars. Some of them won. I don't know. Everybody brings, uh, he comes, he's not a, a blank slate. He's, 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 he's a continuation of something that happened to him before. Mm-hmm. And you are now engaging with this crowd that is already a part of something bigger. So we need to think about it. And also the magic you do, whether it's, you know, you're doing ambitious card, people look at ambitious card, but they see it and they connect it to your personality. They respond to it based on how you present it and who you are. And that's going to change the effect, change the emotions they have. How important do you think it is to consider uh, the impact that you have on an audience or do you think it's not your responsibility to worry about what they take away from it hmm. it's a, it's again these are great questions um you should listen to the podcast <laughs> yeah i because you talk about it okay, i should i should i should i will um what was the last podcast you did and who was oh it? i don't remember Jeanette andrews i think in uh chicago she's a mm-hmm. phenomenal magician and uh, an artist Great. Okay, then I'll listen to that. So, um, as an artist, you know, you can be very pure and paint what you want or do whatever magic you want and not consider the crowd at all. Just, I I like this trick, I like this one, I don't care what people think, I like it. And then you present it. Um, 
and you'll find that you know there's a there's an overlap uh, be- between your taste and the audiences. So there, there could be there are many scenarios. One is that uh, you re- you realize that you you are the kind your material your taste is more with the adults in nightclubs, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or that your stuff is more for kids, or your stuff is more for this type of group. So you can find your audience. Mm-hmm. So that's the one extreme of being pure and then finding your audience that likes it or finding that overlap uh, and sticking mm-hmm. to that. The other one is to be a hack, mm-hmm. meaning just listen to the audience and test every trick you do. And whatever they like and clap and cheer, you keep doing more of that stuff. And then you are the other uh, end of the spectrum. So I think it's these are the two. And... and, and and you have many, many artists uh, who don't even need to mention any of them. It's clear, I think, of artists that were not understood during their time. And 20, 30 years later, they found their crowd. They were long gone. Mm-hmm. And then the audience, oh, this is actually good. Where have you been all these years? Um, so I think every person can just look at the two ends and say, where am I? And what's important to me? My true voice, what I really want to say and what I really want to do uh, versus I want to be a crowd pleaser. I want to just, I want to get paid. I want to get more gigs. I want, and by the way, both of them are, I'm not putting down any of these sides. They're both valid. I gravitate towards, I guess, the other side, the, you know, doing things that I really like for, for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm uh, gladly, I mean, I think uh, I found my crowd. I, I, there are people that think that it's good and they book me. So it's good. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Um... Do you feel any kind of responsibility in a country that doesn't have a very strong uh, magical history in the public eye? Do you feel a responsibility to educate your audience about what good magic is? Um, Yes. Uh, I think you... Every time you do a show and you do a good show... Uh, that becomes something that they can compare it with. So, for example, if they've seen a hack and he did really commercial, great material, they're going to love him. They're going to think this is the greatest magician we've ever seen. Now, if uh, a few weeks later they go and see a great magic in a theater uh, where there's meaning behind it and and great stuff like in and of itself, which is a wonderful show... um, now they're going to compare that show to the hack they saw. Yeah. And, and that's going to become the education they get. And the more good magic that we see out there, either on TV and theaters and, or in private gigs uh, or corporate gigs, whatever, um, that becomes their education because they can, they can see, you know, I can't put my finger on it, but this feels very artistic, profound, meaningful, this depth to what I'm seeing here, this is obviously better than the guy with the, uh, you know, <laughs> and I don't want to put any Bolarama. trick down. I was about to say a few to give. Yeah, I was about to give a, a few. And by the way, you want to hear something really great? Uh, great. <laughs> I'm complimenting myself. Uh, um, something that I think is interesting. You know, hack material, by the way, was not hacked to begin yeah. with. It was actually great magic. I'll give an example. Cartoon deck is a great trick. Cartoon deck is a... So imagine that you were the only person in the world to do cartoon deck. 
you'll, you'll have a signature piece that everybody remembers. It's beautiful. It's unique. It's terrific. <laughs> the reason it's hack is because everybody's doing it. Um, so by repetition and just by, uh, you know, doing a cover for the same trick again and again and again becomes... And you said Bolorama. Bolorama is a great it's trick. It's a fucking amazing trick. It's a great trick. And just because everyone is doing it, it's not a great trick. Now, some tricks are just bad tricks, even if one person yes. does them. Yeah. But, but, but there's a lot of, you know... It, it, I th- you can I, say I've it heard, like this. Yeah. A great trick doesn't become a not great trick because everybody's doing it. It just loses its value because everyone is doing it. Yes, 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 yes. And, and if you do decide to do something that's been done before, I, I give you a quote, uh, a, a wonderful quote that I've heard. I think it was Matisse. I might be wrong on that. But Matisse used to say that the most difficult thing to paint is a rose. And it's, a, it's, it's great, no? The most difficult thing to paint is a rose. And why? Because every person has painted a rose. So back to magic, if, you, if you're doing a classic, you really need to find a new way to tell that story. And, and you have a greater, it's a greater effort that you need to make in order to be, uh, to, to, to stick out and to, to make your voice heard. Mm-hmm. Where if you come up with a trick that's new or not, not being done a lot, you have more room to do that and you don't need to struggle as much. Because we, we fall into the, um, the formula or the, um, we know what works because we've, because we see, we've seen some of the greatest ambitious cards routines ever. And you say, okay, this is great. I'm going to do this, this, and that. And now you don't need to work hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just it's it's a harder uh, uh, task to be good with something that's been done to death and explored to death and figured. You know, a good trick. If I go back to my book, for example, there's a bunch of tricks there that I've worked for. I worked on them for a long, long time, but I really. Uh, Challenge people to take those tricks and make it their own, and 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 bring their own voices to those tricks, and and that's the I think it's the only way that you should perform any of those tricks in in there. How did you write those tricks in such a way that encouraged people to bring their own? Were you explicit and said, "Make this your own"? I'm not going to include the pattern that I use, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, so what we did is intentionally. I there's some pattern. That's vital for the trick. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you need to say something here. So I, t- I tell this what I say when I do this move. Uh, but then you can use anything else. So I, I de- it's not heavy on pattern. Mm-hmm. It's not like that I gave you a full script for every trick. And it's intentional. And I, I did not want to pollute people's minds with my pattern. And, 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 and leave enough room for them to grow with their own patterns and vision because once you hear a great idea you you start thinking oh yeah i should do the same and then you stop thinking so i, I intentionally i it's not heavy on pattern it's heavy on technique it's heavy on details it's heavy on what i think is important uh it, it, we i've illustrated uh, quite a lot because i want to be very clear mm-hmm. and and yeah that's about what i well, that's that's those are the things that were important to me so where do you find your inspiration for new material? I mean, we, we already spoke a little bit about how 
everything, as long as you're open to it, can be inspirational. But, I mean, mm-hmm. for, let's say some of the pieces in your book, what were the moments, what were the experiences where you had the the light bulb kind of epiphany for the tricks that you're doing? Or where did you go to look for inspiration in, you know, like an old magic magazine or something? Sure. You know, there's not one... I don't have one answer because sometimes uh, I, I started developing a trick just because... I'll give you an example. Time is Money was a fold that I saw in a Will Dexter book when I was a kid. And I often thought, wow, this is a really deceptive origami fold. Oh, I bet you I can do something with it. And after many, many years, it evolved into the trick uh, that I perform to this day. Uh, Some tricks start with a plot. You know, how cool would it be if I did this, this, and that? And then I find a method. Uh, sometimes it's a trick that I, I learned from somebody else, mm-hmm. literally did it verbatim the way they instruct. And then I said, you know, it happened to be with uh, uh, Gary Kurtz's uh, chair test, which I love, performed for many years, a wonderful piece that does not, I don't replace it with a better idea. It's a different approach. Um, I thought that it would be interesting if I eliminated the chairs and made the information more about them. Mm-hmm. So, that's so my magic evolved in so many directions you just have to keep in this mind of this could be better what can i do with that um what else can i say with this or where could it go every time i buy trick and i buy tricks all the time by the way there's wonderful creators out there that create great magic all the time um like danny diortis there's a wonderful trick that i learned from him but and I could have done it exactly the way he does it and with great success. But I kept asking questions. Hold on, but I like to do it like that. But I like to start with the shuffle deck. I like to do without gimmicks. I like to do this. I like to do that. You know, Michael Weber really uh, influenced me um, with the trick uh, double exposure. Mm-hmm. And but he 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 let such energy be you know in me. To work on How so? it because his trick, because his trick is wonderful. You can just do the trick exactly the way he explains it uh, in one of his lecture notes, and it's wonderful. It's a beautiful situational trick. Um, and I just said, okay, but what if I want to do it more often? What if I want to do it with a regular deck? What if I? Ta-ta? I'm just keep. I keep asking questions, and that's what brings it to a new place. But with that said, I, I want to say one thing that's very important. Sometimes people come to me in conventions and they say, oh, here's a trick. Uh, a take on your trick. Can I publish it? And that's something that, that, that is a very tricky territory. So you really have to change a lot about something. And and after that, after you change a lot, if the creator is still alive, you need to call them and say, do you feel like this is different enough? And that's what I've done with any creation that uh, stands on, on, on the shoulders of those giants. You know, I, I call and ask, hey, is this cool for me to publish this? So that's another thing that people, I just, I thought it's, uh, it's crucial to, to mention because it happens quite mm-hmm. a lot where, and, and we see this all over the market where you have a variation of the same trick 17 times, sometimes with a blue back deck, sometimes with red, and it's like they change so little. And I feel like that's not fair to the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, so for me, I did not, release anything in my book or in my career in general until I felt like I've changed a significant amount of um, 
details or presentation or method. And only then I said, okay, I, I have something more or different, not, not more different to say. How many times did and you get I, a no? Oh, um, never. And, and I'm not flattering myself. It's because I really am strict about when I changed a lot. And I know that I changed mm-hmm. a lot. I, it's, it's, it's evident. Usually the gray area is, is, is gray area, but the black and white is very easy to identify. If you changed a lot about something, then it's, it's, you know, it's clear. And even then you should still check. And I do. So I, 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 that's my ethical um, policy. No, I, I think that's great, and I completely agree. Um, I just asked if you ever got a no because, and this you know may be helpful for some people listening, when you get a no, remember what Ozzy really just said, and yeah. think of it as a not yet. Keep working on the idea. Exactly. Keep evolving it and change it way more than you thought was necessary. And then it becomes yours, you know, then you have a blessing instead of um, permission, you know, it's a, there's a subtle difference there. Yeah, that's true. And you know, the other thing is if you changed a little bit, you know, you have what we call a few touches on something, Mm -hmm. then that's great. Use it. Then you perform it like that with your touches. And maybe that's the end, the end uh, result of that trick. And now you perform it exactly the way you want to perform it with the with the few tweaks that you've made for it, but you can't publish it. And it's okay for you to just perform it the way you perform it. And like um, I, I do one of the tricks by Cody Fisher, um, Killer Prediction. I've changed uh, a significant amount about the way he does the trick, the way I do the trick, but not enough to, to call it my own. I will never, I will not publish it. Unless I keep tweaking it and keep changing it, and then I will still give Cody a call and say, "Hey, what do you think about that? Is this is this uh, worth?" Because because remember, you're publishing to not just make money or make a name for yourself. You're publishing to also for the, the bigger picture to push the art form forward. And if you have nothing new to say, you're not pushing it forward. You're just doing it for the other reasons that I've mentioned before. Yeah, I totally agree. How how many times have you gotten burned out, either in magic or in painting, but you just have been in it so deeply for so long that you just have to stop and take a break? Or has that never happened? Oh, many times. <laughs> uh, I I, I was I would say more. More, I've, I've, you mean like giving up on a trick that I'm working on and it just it doesn't go anywhere and I abandon it? Even sure, yeah. Something like that? Oh, many times. You know, uh, one thing, that, uh, there are two scenarios that happen to me quite a lot. I say, okay, this is a good idea. If I took this and this and that and I put it together, it's going to be great. And then you go and get the ingredients you need and whatever gimmick you need to build and it just doesn't work. Like it works perfectly in your head. <laughs> but in practice, in actuality, nothing. Just complete failure. And say, how did I think it's going to work? Of course it's not going to work. You know, the, the, the law of gravity and other things interfere with, your, with the theory. And sometimes you do envision everything. Say, okay, if I took this Van Gali deck and I took this and I put this and I put some marking there, boom, you have a trick and it works perfectly as planned. So I've had both things happen. And actually a, a third option is... 
that you you think something will work, you build it all together, you spend thousands of dollars, and then you realize, you know what? I don't need all of that. I only need something that costs 10 cents. And after spending thousands of dollars on building something this and that, you realize, wow, I could have just done that, and that would have saved me so much money. You know, Teller, Teller's talk about the red ball, the floating ball, is amazing. Okay, so he, he talked, I won't spoil much, uh, but he, the amount of effort and money that he spent on that routine versus what it ended up being is unbelievable. But he probably had to do, to take the whole route to get to where he mm-hmm. was. So, so that, that happens a lot. Uh, that I spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and then I go say, you know what? What I thought at the very, very beginning, the first idea I had, that's the better one. And, and sometimes you just have to fail. You have to do it again and again and again until you, you arrive at whatever conclusion, you know. And, and always keep in mind that it's never finished. Mm-hmm. It's never, never finished. It's never finished, and the more you fail, the more you learn about something, for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you should not be afraid of failure. Failure is a, is a great teacher. And also, success is a great teacher. Um, sometimes if you, you, you walk away from a show and you killed that night, and the energies, everything was perfect, uh, I, I find that people sometimes don't do that. They only focus on the failures, but also remember to focus on the successes. That you have because is that a word successes? Yes. Okay. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes if you kill, ask yourself why tonight was great. What did I do tonight that was better? Be- and, I, and I think that's also a great teacher. Yeah. Um, enjoy your successes, learn from your success, and and um, and also the failures. I f- I feel like we need to focus on both, uh, favoring either. Is, is wrong. If you only learn from success and not from failure, you're not going to be, and vice versa. So it's, it's important to keep that balance. And also, it makes you a happier person. Sure. <laughs> if, yeah, if you can give time think, to the success too, it, it definitely would make you a happier person. What are some of the, yeah. the biggest lessons that you've learned from each success and failure? Again, it's, it's, it's very general, but... Um, what was an th- early th- lesson th- that you learned when you just bombed? You just ate shit? Hmm... I, I learned not to bomb again. And how did you? How did you <laughs> said, not don't bomb, bomb again? again. No, I, I I tell you something. One of the things that it just uh, this is a reoccurring thing, and I learned from it because it happened again and again, is that you do a show, it starts all right, and then you do one piece and it just bombs, and then you go into this state of mind. Oh, I, I that's it. It's over, and now everything suffers because of that one. And if you learn to recover quickly mm-hmm. from a trick that just went wrong, and sometimes it, everybody has their own way of doing it, but sometimes say, um, I say, by the way, this did not work. Let me try something that does work. You know, but some people try to make it look like they didn't bomb, mm-hmm. and, and it becomes like a snowball of, of just not a good show. Um, so it, the quicker you recover, um, and stand on your feet. That's uh, that's like that's a pro. Like when we see Chen Canasta fail with his book test on the um, what's the name of that person? Peterson? No, not Peterson. I forget his name. It will come to me. But he does. You can YouTube. You can find Chen Canasta, um, and he fails with the book test, and so quickly without. You, 
guys, whoever's listening to this, really go watch it and just see how long between the failure, he re- between the second he realized that he failed to the second that he picks up to, to recover, mm-hmm. it's a second. And that's a real pro. Um, the idea that he doesn't even telegraph that something went wrong. He admits, okay, as you can see, sometimes it goes wrong, but you know, I was thinking page 80 and blah, 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 and he recovers. He admits to failure right away in a most nonchalant, he doesn't make a big deal out of it, and he moves on, and he doesn't register as a failure. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great lesson. Um, as a matter of fact, I want to Google it. Now. <laughs> um, well, failure, failure is definitely communicated by the performer. And so, like, for example, I was listening to uh, uh, some comedians talk about Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live. And when they would do, they would do the live show and a sketch was just bombing. Will would take extra long to draw out Mm. the sketch and he would just live in it and enjoy it, even though the audience hated it as a way of (laughs) saying it's not up to you if I have a good time or not. Right. And so, yeah. So you are definitely communicating whether something works or not. I, obviously, there was an objective. Oh, he found the card or he didn't find the card. But if you don't find yes. the card and it's fine to you, everybody else feels that relief that it isn't a big deal. They're like, oh my God, it's okay. Exactly. You know? Because you're in charge of the audience. And I wanted to ask you how you feel like, what, what are the steps that you take to make these individual people bringing in their own baggage and experiences, how do you make those people into one breathing organism that is an audience? What are some of the things that you think about and, hmm. and portray and say, perhaps? So, uh, you know, uh, this is not a secret, but one of my biggest influences is Juan Tamariz. And, you know, collectively over the years, he's given me so much advice uh, either directly or just, you know, in workshops and lectures that he give. Uh, and um, he says that you can't fake it. For example, if you feel sad and you walk into a room and you pretend to be happy and expect the audience to believe it, they're not going to. So he says you can find that place where you're, you're performing, the sad version of you is performing. Mm-hmm. And then the audience is going to start giving you energy. And organically and, and, and realistically, it's going to start, they're going to start m- making you feel better. Like, I remember I was depressed, you know, a few months ago, but something happened to me and I had a show. And I did not make an effort to fake it. I, I wasn't terrible. I wasn't like crying as I was doing it, but it was like, okay. And slowly the audience was great. And I start having this back and forth with them and they lifted my spirits and, I, and it was a better show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it, to create an audience or, to, or to, to bring them to be one or family-like, you know, is, is, is that dialogue that you have with your audience. It's a respect that I have for my audience that, the, that it is not me, you know, showing them what I can do. It's it's about me sharing with them. It's about me talking with them, not at them. And and all of those things, I think, make a difference. If they feel like you're a genuine person, 
you know, it's, 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 it's similar to how you, you, there's certain people that you will open up to. You'll tell them your deepest secrets because you feel this comfort. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they're inviting. There's something about them feels sincere. It feels like they're, they're good, they're good talkers, but they're also good listeners. And, and you're there, you, you feel it. They suck you in. And I think, and again, it's a complex, it's probably just one answer to that question because there's many, many answers. It's that, it's, you know, it's the, um, what kind of person you are, you know, it goes to, I can only quote the seven veils that Juan mm-hmm. talks about, which I, I totally agree with, you know, of the sincerity, the 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 effort and the, um, the the passion you have for your art and the audience and so forth. And and all of these things is what creates an audience. Yeah, the one of the most important things personally to me as an artist is the authenticity of sharing with your audience because especially like in this entertainment saturated culture everyone can smell bullshit from a mile away everyone mm-hmm. and if you even consider for a moment being a successful artist you cannot go out there and be hack <laughs> Like you can make money, but you won't be fulfilled because you aren't sharing something that is honest and authentic to you. Um, yeah, you can succeed commercially, but not artistically. Yes, I, I know. I know a lot of people who are true hacks, and they're very successful. They make lots of money, and maybe they're even happy and content. Um, but again, it's perspective. From my perspective, they did not succeed as artists. Mm-hmm. They did not succeed at uh, contributing something to the art or expanding the art. They just they benefit from the art. They, they, they take use away it. from the art. They take they use the art to their own selfish uh, benefits, and they're content with that. And they're happy with that. They're they're business people. They're great marketeers. Um, but they're not great creators. So the, success is a very loose term. You know, success is what you set yourself to succeed at. So if I want to be a great artist and I succeed, in my opinion, then I succeed. If I want to be making lots of money and I make a lot of money, then I make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And now that's my success. Sure. So uh, take me back to the beginning. Growing up in Israel, being interested in art, what was that like? Um, you're talking about artists in painting or art in general? Just magic artis- art- artistic, all- so on and so forth. You were an artistic child. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I, um, I wasn't a great student, but the one thing that I, I did okay was with painting and drawing, and I really loved it as a kid. And throughout, all the way to... to like 16 or so, I was painting and... and and then I became, became more focused on magic and I abandoned the whole idea. Um, and at some point, actually, in Israel, I, I even abandoned magic. I became more of a comedic magician. And at some point, it was just comedy. It was like magic that did not work and it was just to get the laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I moved to the States, uh, my appetite to do magic again uh, came back. I moved to the States at 21 and fell in love with New York. 
in only about, I would say, uh, towards late twenties is when I my my desire to paint again and draw. I don't know, you know, I don't, I cannot even tell you how and why. But all of a sudden I wanted to sketch again. I took pencils and sketchbooks and started to sketch. And then I tried watercolor and str struggled with it tremendously. And then I started taking courses at SVA. I, st I started going to the Soho um, figure drawing and I would draw from live, from live models. And, and then I wanted to try oils for the first time. And I, that's when I met Laura. Laura Alexander is an amazing painter. And I uh, start, you know, taking lessons uh, with her. And over the years, we became friends, really good friends, and kept learning from her and, and talk about art and consume art, uh, sometimes more than magic. You know, I, there was a period of, of uh, like a bunch of years that I did not even read about magic. I only read about art. Mm -hmm. And in, as I told you, indirectly learned about magic. Anything related, um, like biographies, how-tos, figure drawings, whatever I could find, I, I would read. Why were you drawn to it? What was I? Why was... were you drawn to that? I, what attracted you I don't... to painting or drawing? Or... You, 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 you know, there, there is a, there's an aspect of magic in, in, in painting. There are many aspects, but there's one aspect that is magic. I, I've always felt like you're creating pseudo-life with two dimensions. <laughs> um, I just had a conversation with Derek Delgado the other day about how... Uh, he, he just gave me a great idea. I don't want to reveal the whole idea, but I'll tell you half of it. Um, he, he pointed out that, you know, with art, it's a two dimensions that, that creates a third dimension. It's, it's, um, you're creating the illusion of something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, a good painting, if, if it's a portrait, let's say, you can see a person and the emotion and you can feel something through a bunch of marks of paint on a canvas or a board, whatever. And, and it's amazing because it shouldn't, but it, it fools your senses and, and your emotions to feel something. So there's like this magical aspect to art, uh, especially to painting, that that creates that dimension that only happens in your head. Once, I'm sorry. Oh, I like my dog, but uh, he's annoying. Da Vinci, stop. All right, so let's resume. Uh, by the way, it, maybe maybe we should wrap it up because he's going he's going crazy now. So okay, but, um, and if you want to resume, we can of course. I don't know what length you have in. Do you have a length in mind? I, I or? Maybe half an hour more. Is that okay? We'll try. I, I hope he's not going to bother us because and if he barks, let just let it be, and we'll talk about. Yeah, the yeah, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> okay, exactly. Um, okay. So what you know when you talk about painting, you are talking about the magic of creating an illusion, and so is it illusion? Is it is it um uh speaking something without words is it making someone have an emotion without being explicit about it that draws you to art i i'm, I'm just trying to to kind of get into what it is that draws you towards an artistic lifestyle so 
I see what you're saying. So there are lots of parallels between the two, meaning things that are like magic and art, and they they have that in common. Mm -hmm. But also there's a lot of things that they don't have in Mm -hmm. common, which is a complementary thing in my life. Because, you know, when I paint, I'm by myself. I'm alone or sometimes with a model. But it's usually it's a very minimal... uh, introvert uh experience where magic is the opposite mm-hmm. it's a crowd and people clap after like at the end of a, when i finish a painting nobody's clapping and say whoa bravo do it again you know it's 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 different and it fulfills uh, a part in me that is not fulfilled with magic um also the fact that it's not my business meaning i don't rely on art to to put bread on my uh, or or Duke Ford in his book, <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's really not, um, I'm not dependent on art and that's a beautiful thing. It keeps it in a very pure place. I can paint anything I want. I can do it whenever I want. Uh, and it's a comp it's, it's nice. So it, it's, it's both when I'm, the reason I'm drawn to art, it's because it's similar to magic and to what I do. And it's also very different than what I mm-hmm. do. It fills a different part of you. Yes, it reveals. Um, uh, it, it's like a, it's it's almost as if I learned another language. I can express myself in one more way, and say things that I could not say any other mm-hmm. way. So I, I like that about it. Really. And then, what was it as a child that that made you interested? What was going on at home? Was it just you needed something to do, or you know, you were gifted? Be- so and- believe it or not. A gift, I don't know, gifted is, a, is another philosophical <laughs> idea. Um, I, I think, first of all, it's, it might come as a surprise to a lot of people, but as a kid, I was very shy, <laughs> very, very shy. Uh, very few friends, not very quiet, very quiet. Are you an only child? Uh, uh, no, uh, I have one okay. brother, one brother. Um, it, so I was very shy and, and I... It, it that was an extension for me. It was it was a comfortable place. Um, I could, you know, lose or 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 win hours of of, of painting and drawing, and I, I really loved it. It's a it was a very there's something very uh, meditative about painting. Mm-hmm. It really is the the amount of concentration and the. Uh, the focus that you you have to have is is just it's it's a very it, it's it, it's an ext- it's euphoric you can walk away from a good session of painting really really um happy and fulfilled yeah you can dip into the flow right yeah it's it's a flow and it's also um there's a point that you you walk away some not always it happens once in a blue moon but you walk away from the canvas and Wow, I, I did that. That's kind of cool. It's almost, and especially when you, when you, it's that's that's where it's a little different than magic, you know, because you can come back to a painting years later and and it looks as if uh, an invisible twin brother of yours painted mm-hmm. it. It's not quite you. Some, and, and that's the, the the beautiful thing about recording. You record it, you. Your state of mind, where you were, uh, the level of your expertise, or your or or the emotional state you were in, you record it on paper, 
or on canvas. And when you look at it, it triggers, especially, you know, for the artist, it, it, it triggers a moment. I know where I was, I know what I did, and something that we call flukes, because my early work is all terrible, um, most of it. But in, bet in between those really terrible um, paintings, there's one fluke, or at least something that I consider a fluke. And I look at it and say, wow, I, I, I like that. I, this is not, this is still valid. I look at it and it still does something. Where some work you say, oh, that's amateurish, that's not great, it's just a study. But yeah, I don't know how we got here, but it's interesting. Yeah, certainly. And then, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty universal experience. If you have the self-awareness to go back and look at your own work is is to go and say, oh, that was all shit, except, wait, there's something that's interesting. And then you, that, that, that like you were saying about recording uh, audio or video, it's the same kind of thing where you can go back and see these snapshots and you go, oh, wait, that's, I can, I'm learning something about myself from this. And yes, this, yes, and yes. this, and all of that other stuff is garbage, but this is interesting. And then I always find it intriguing to then take those lessons and throw them in a blender and try and distill that down and go, what is it that that was that mm. I, that kind of shone yeah. through the clouds that I can then harness specifically to make a new piece? Sure, yeah. You, you carry... You carry with yourself uh, knowledge, obviously, and, and experience when you when you work on a new piece of magic or whatever it is, whatever art you're creating. Um, but with that said, I believe you should, we should approach um, everything with the the mind of a student. Uh, I've, I've said it, I said it all the time, but I, I truly believe that that when you approach anything with the notion that you know what you're doing. And there's like a little bit of aura of cockiness and confidence. You you block yourself from learning. The moment you think you know something is the moment you declare that you don't need to learn anything else. That's why words like a master or oh, he's a master or he's an expert. Those are really uh, deadening, deadening, I don't know, uh, terms. They, they really make you not as sharp as you could be. Mm -hmm. Because you, 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 you think, oh, I know what I'm doing. No, you don't know anything. You know, you know nothing. And, and if you approach it from that way, you are an explorer. You ask more questions. You doubt more. You try different things, you know. It, it doesn't contradict confidence, but it, it, it becomes a, um, a tool. Mm -hmm. And my dog wants to go out. I have a door. It's just like I explained to you what's happening. I have a backyard. Uh -huh. And, and now, and then my friend is in the backyard, and he wants to go in and out, in and out. <laughs> so he's annoying me, and now he's going to whine. So hold on. Okay, I told my friend to be in charge of the dog. <laughs> okay, so sorry. I'm, he's annoying. And it happens especially when I, because usually I sit on the sofa. And, okay, anyway. <laughs> so we spoke about the confidence and the, the uh, attitude that you should approach with uh, anything with the attitude of, of a student. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Keep it open yeah. so you can learn. You can learn more. In the moment you think in terms of, oh, I'm a master, I'm this, I'm that, um, you you basically prevent yourself from learning more. Yes. And, and I think that's, uh, yeah, you, you know, 
you're always learning, you're always great, but uh, this is something, a quote that I, I have used quite a lot, and, um, and I think it's very true. Uh, I took an SVA course, and my, my uh, teacher said, um, don't strive to be a good artist, strive to be a better artist. And, and the reasoning behind this approach is, one suggests that there's, a, there's an end. Mm-hmm. You work, 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 now I'm good. Great, bravo, you, you made it, you're here. And the other one, you're striving to be a better artist, is ongoing. It's forever and ever. You'll never be good. You'll be better. You'll never be good. You only can get better. And I love that approach. Uh, and it's actually, some people look at it and say, oh, that's a downer because I want to be, oh, be a master. I want to be great. Nobody is. Nobody is. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's a plus because it means you'll always have joy. You're always going to explore more. Uh, your profession will never be boring. It's always going to be more and more interesting. And uh, I see it as a plus. I agree. I think that's, uh, you know, I've been mentioned time and time again is that the people who, you know, okay, so Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you're a quote unquote expert in a thing, right? <laughs> um, but the more that you learn about something, the more you awaken to the fact that there's a whole lot of stuff you don't know. And there's even more mm-hmm. stuff you don't know you don't know, right? Exactly. You can th- name things that you know. I know how to drive a car. I know my name is Elliot. I don't know how to fly an airplane. I don't know mm-hmm. how to properly cook a piece of chicken on the stove. <laughs> and then there's you know an infinite number of things I don't know I don't know. And the more that you learn about a specific thing, the more you're awakened to the fact that there is that infinite possibility out there. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's a it's an interesting thing that the people that think they're great, uh, they they lose on two things, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. The one thing they lose is that they don't learn because they think they're masters, they know everything, you know. So they're missing on the the growth. They're missing on learning more and expanding and, and discovering new territories that did not even know exist. So that's the first loss. The second loss is the audience can tell that you are full of yourself and, and, that, and that makes you not as good of, of uh, not to be confused with confidence. You know, confidence is obviously very important. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about thinking that you know everything, um, like that you figured the universe. No, you didn't. Uh, so so you, you lose twice. You lose, A, to discovering territories, and also it might make you not as pleasant as a human being or a um, performer, if that's, if that's important mm-hmm. to you. Completely. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we know. We know a few. We won't mention anyone, but we know a few people that fall into this category, and, and really it's not pleasant to be in their company, and it's not pleasant to see they're performing either. Yeah. I, yep. Yep. And that's enough said about that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, so it, this is kind of jumping gears, but what is it that you think is important about portraying magic on television? Because obviously you've worked with David Blaine on many things. What is it sure. that you think is important to convey with magical entertainment on television? 
So TV is a, is a tricky medium. It's not the most suitable thing to to show magic. I mean, obviously, the best way to see magic is in person, live. Um, in David was very clever and smart to to make it credible by giving the the reactions and the people more of a voice to validate that what's happening is real and and genuine. But in in general, you know, it's very easy to doubt anything you see on TV. You know, especially with the, all the CGI and things that we could do. And some magicians abuse that. There's some magicians that absolutely would use that to make it look like they can do those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but TV is a medium to to get the attention and to make magic popular and make people want to buy a ticket to go see a show. Generally, I, I, I'm not in love with the medium of TV. Um, hence, you don't see me on... TV shows, in <laughs> um, uh, but I, I I can't deny the fact that it's an amazing vehicle to advertise. I mean, I th- I look at TV as, as a big advertising tool. It's a billboard, you know, um, and it could be done very well, and and artistically and interesting. Like I like what Darren Brown is doing. I like what obviously Blaine is doing, and but eventually those things. I think the biggest success or triumph is is to make people leave home, buy a ticket, go and see Magic mm-hmm. Live. Um, I think that's where it belongs. And, and in general, I'm, I'm I'm I love theater. I love live events. I don't own a TV at home. I I, I don't watch TV. I'm I'm <laughs> when I hang with people that are half my age, and they tell me certain things that probably everybody knows, and I don't. Is because I really not. I'm not. Hooked. I don't. I don't watch TV. I I watch some. I watch movies and some series. You know, everybody's raving about. I'll watch eventually, like Breaking Bad. <laughs> That's amazing. It's very good. Um, oh, it's wonderful. It's great. I I I watch it after every friend of mine said you've got to watch this, and then it was a marathon. I I stayed until five a.m., six a.m. and watched it. It happened to me with the. Uh, with the, not with the jinx, making a murderer. Blaine said, oh, see, you got to watch this. <laughs> so it was midnight. And I said, you know what? It's only an hour long, only 10 episodes. I'll watch one episode. By one o'clock, I'll be in bed. So I watched the first one. Okay, one more, two o'clock, I'll be in bed. Anyway, I ended up going to bed at 10. <laughs> I watched the whole thing straight through. It was great. Making a Murderer. Did you see that? I've seen some of it. I didn't watch all of it straight through. Oh, it's crazy. What a crazy uh, story. Whether it's true or not, I think it is, but uh, crazy, crazy story. So, yeah, TV is important. TV is a great place to, again, make people buy a ticket. It's simple. That's the way I look at it. Simple as that. And you can create great magic on TV if it's, you know... A good trick, and you don't cut away too much, and and you don't cheat the camera so much, and and you you honor the the craft of magic. And I um, Blaine is amazing at that. Blaine could easily cheat, and he will always choose the purest, most possible, most direct way to 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 do magic, and keep it, you know, the same way you experience it as if you were there. And 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 I think that's great. Obviously. Not always possible with TV. Sometimes you need to shorten things just because of length. Because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, you know, the, t- the TV is more sensitive to, to dead time. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I just came uh, from uh, my friend. And I went to see Angels in America, and I've seen it before. It's it's eight hours. Have you heard about that? It's eight hours of Broadway, and it's two parts. Four four hours about about four hours roughly each. Wow. Part. Now, if you saw it on TV, I'm sure it will be boring as hell. But live, seeing it live, I, I, I um, we walked out, and I said to my friend, um, you know, I it. it I always believe that there's no such thing as a long show. There's only a show that feels long. And that show did not feel long at all. And it was almost four hours. And uh, and the next, I think the next half is four and a half hours. I think, I, I don't know, but it's about roughly eight hours, the whole thing. Wow. And it's terrific. It's great, great, great. Again, and I, it's funny, as I'm answering all of these things, <laughs> Somewhere midway through my answering, I don't remember what the question was, <laughs> but it's but it's great because you're just sliding. It's a trigger, and then we go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I just I just asked about TV and what you think magic, you know, what the yes. role of magic is, and you answered it brilliantly. And that's basically advertising to get people in seats. For me, for me, that's that would be if I was if I was to do TV, which I don't, but if I did, that would be my only goal. Is to, like for example, I I have yet to see it, but I, I need to see it. I know Derek was on the Colbert show and he didn't do any magic. He just spoke about his um, show, and I thought that's great because it's exactly what I believe. He cuts to the chase. I'm going to tell you about the show that you can only see live. If you want to see it, come see it live because that's how it should be seen. And I love that. I I think it's very uh, ballsy. How many magicians go talk shows and just talk about their show? Not too many. I, th- I thought it was very nice of him to do. And, and brave. I thought it was brave. Absolutely. And it's not pandery at all. And I think that there needs no. to be yeah. more of that. And this is not at all any sort of commentary on Blaine going on Fallon and doing magic or anything like that. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's incredible. Those pieces. Yes. Uh, that goes without saying. But I there is like... Uh, Derek is putting reverence on his show by not doing a card trick on mm-hmm. the late show. You know, he's yes. he's yes, 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 yes. he's putting the whole experience of what it is that he put into it over doing a trick for the people in the room and on the TV. You know. Yes. And with that said, I I want to be clearly honest about this. What Blaine does on, let's say, the Jimmy Fallon, the two, the, the two uh, performances that he did lately on Jimmy Fallon, I don't know if it was before, but the last two, I thought those were two of the most amazing uh, talk show pieces I've ever seen by a magician. Um, it's not easy. It's one take, it's live, and... They're killers. Uh, They're beautiful pieces. Um, Not easy to do. And I I salute that. I I love that. Yeah, so do I. I also want to be clear. I'm not at all putting down (laughs) going on a show and doing magic. Yeah, yeah. And nobody can do it like Blaine does, for sure. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and, And with that said, going, seeing David live is way better. Yeah. David kills. David has an amazing show, and I, and I think if anyone listening to this 
if you have not seen the, the, the show that David is putting out, you know, now he's on tour, you make an effort if it's a city next to you go see it if you can get tickets it's wonderful i'm seeing him tomorrow night it's an amazing you're gonna see him tomorrow, tomorrow oh, night. yeah it's great it's wonderful wonderful i love that show i love i've seen it so many times and i'm 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 happy that i was involved with it and you know helped create the show and it's it's a wonderful 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 show it's probably one of my favorite magic shows i've ever seen i'm i'm unbelievably excited i can't wait I cannot hype it enough. I, I have a feeling you're going to come out and and think it's even better than what I'm saying now. <laughs> How did you two it's meet? It's really, it's, it's, it's How what? did you two meet? How did we yeah. meet? Um, uh, we have met um, through, if my recollection uh, works, I think it was Doug McKenzie who introduced between us, uh, but but it was incidental still. I was I lived in, on 33rd at the time and I was walking my dog. Not this obnoxious one, a different obnoxious uh, dog. I love dearly, <laughs> but, but I, I was walking my dog, and it was Doug and David walking in front of me. And I think Doug said something. Oh, this is the guy I spoke to you about, and um, and David said, "Why won't you come over to the office?" And I came over, and we I showed him some magic, and we clicked right away. Make a long story short, we ended up playing backgammon. From 9 p.m. until 6 in the morning, nonstop for all these hours. It was it was amazing, and he he tricked me because you know I play backgammon since I was a kid. It's very it's part of his Israeli culture, mm-hmm. and and I see that I'm, I'm in his apartment and I see that he has a backgammon and I go, David, um, do you play backgammon? Because Americans don't... Do you play back in? I've, I've played Americans before, don't. but it's not something I would just go but, and do but at it's a friend's not, house. N- not, a common, not a common game in like chess and this, yes, but not backgammon. In Israel, everybody has a backgammon, and they play backgammon. Mm-hmm. So it was really weird for me to see David play back. I mean, own a set of backgammon. And the motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> says, Oh, yeah, I know the rules. <laughs> he's a great backgammer. Uh, he kicked my ass. I kicked his ass a little bit after, I have to say, but <laughs> that night he kicked my ass. Um, he's a great, he's great. Uh, and we play a lot. So we we really hit it off as, as friends and then it evolved into, you know, collaborating on magic and working and learning from each other. And, you know, yeah. And to this day, you know, uh, David is... Uh, is a dear friend, and I, I love working with him, and or just hanging out and you know playing backgammon. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I, I we can wrap it up. Uh, I just sure. you know have a few questions that you can answer reasonably quickly. Um, sure. I'll try. So this is you know for the listeners. What do you feel that more magicians should actively cultivate in their lives? Be hungry, be hungry, and don't. For me, one of the things: don't just be magicians and and don't say, "Oh, I'm." You're, you know, an artist is a is a big umbrella. In in art in general, consume all sorts of art: music, in paintings, in uh, whatever you can. Just be. Be in the arts. Uh, Steve Martin says that in his um, 
masterclass, which I, I highly recommend. He says, you know, consume art, be in the art world, you know, be make friends of different uh, part of art. You know, don't just be the magician. Um, you are in a bigger field than you think you are. You're not just a magician. You're, you're more than that. Touch everything. Be curious about everything. Um, quickly, I would say, I, I recently read the Da Vinci uh, biography uh, by Isaacson, and it's a wonderful read, and he talks about one of the traits that Da Vinci had, which was um, be curious. Be really, really curious. It sounds like a simple advice, but it's, I think it could... It, it could it could enrich your life on so many levels, not just as a magician, but as a person and as a living or organism. Expand, expand, think, look at the bigger picture. Mm, zoom out. Yeah. I think zooming out is incredibly powerful for people just to yeah, kind of yeah, get, yeah. get and, and it's, it's And it's fun. It's fun. You discover things you never thought you would be interested in. Yeah. Absolutely. Who are some of your favorite working magicians? I recently got a message from somebody and they were like, you talk a lot about things that are bad and things people shouldn't do. Talk more about things that are positive. So, but we 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 were pretty positive in this. Yeah, because we one of the biggest things that I think we discussed was learn from your success. Learn from that. Um, I I I I you know I love Derek. I love you know obviously Blaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when Blaine does close up, it's. It's it's very clear to you why he is the the megastar that he is. He he really knows how to deliver magic in a very powerful way. So he's absolutely an amazing working magician, if that's the title we want to use. Um, let's think of um, more people that come to mind that are just you know I'm I'm a little selfish, but all of my friends, the people that I'm really close with, are people that I really enjoy their work for example john graham who's a dear dear friend of mine destroys i mean his shows are wonderful um and then i have my israeli friends which is amir lustig and nimor Darel and um and chaim goldenberg who i really enjoy um doug mckenzie there's wow i you know what i feel like i feel like i'm gonna miss a name and i'm gonna <laughs> offend someone but everyone who's really close friends everyone with me, who edited your book <laughs> Yeah, and Lovick, obviously, and oh, you don't have Derek to say that. Hughes. Yeah, Derek's. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, no, no, but these people are. I'm. I, I said I'm. I'm probably friends with them because I'm attracted to their art too. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's it's part of uh, why I like them so much, uh, is because they're amazing artists. They have something to say, or they're they they're they're they're. they're they're adding something to the world. They're expanding the, the, the art. Mm. And that's a huge lesson to take away is that you should surround yourself with people that inspire you to be better. Yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's true. It's true. And sometimes, you know, on a positive note, sometimes I, I have fr- uh, people, not friends, people that I'm close with who are not yet there and they want to be close to you. They want to be surrounded by mm-hmm. you because you have more experience and they, so they can grow. Do both. You know, surround yourself with yeah, great people that are better than you and, and grow. But also don't be selfish and let other people who are just making their baby steps be around you and learn from your experience and, and share, 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 share. Um, 
and, and, and maybe we can end with that because I, I think that a lot of people are envious or jealous of successful magicians. Bear this in mind. If any magician out there is doing an amazing job, either selling out with an off-Broadway show or doing a great TV show or, you know, doing lots of corporate gigs and he's, they're amazing, remember that the, the better they do, the better these people do or these magicians do, the more work you're going to have, the more opportunities that are going to open up for you because the next time uh, when somebody considers whether or not to hire a magician, say, you know, magic is cool. I've seen it. There was a good this and this and that and maybe we can't afford this guy, but we can afford this guy. You're going to get more work. Magic could become more popular, more desired and appreciated. And talking about the knowledge that you spoke about earlier, this is the knowledge that we give uh, magicians, we give laymen. Laymen can learn to appreciate art, magic, the, the art of magic on a higher level. And we're putting it on a higher pedestal. So the next time, you know, when they consider what kind of entertainment they're going to get or what show to attend, magic will be on the top of the list instead of, oh, okay, we can see... Uh, Hamilton and we can see the Book of Mormon and okay we'll go see a magic show no no we want to go see a magic because we, we love magic because magic rocks so I say go out there and and help all of us you know make this better. we're all in it together <laughs> okay I try yeah yeah okay just a couple more quick questions what's your favorite non-magic book and I, I'm actually going to take that out and say wow. non-art book. Non-art book, okay. Um, but they're all, all, you know, um, wow, non-art book, you're killing me. <laughs> um, <laughs> every, I'm looking, I have a few bookcases. Uh, you know you know what, okay, I'll recommend something that's not quite art, but, you know, Made to Stick, I, I think is a great book. I think that thinking fast and slow is an mm. amazing, but to me, it's a magic book. Um, I just read Sapiens. Oh, interesting. Uh, reread. Yeah, I read it twice. Um, and remember, at the beginning, I said everything is, is interconnected. So Sapiens is, uh, I feel like it needs to be mandatory. Like every human being should read that. It's it's in Hebrew, in Hebrew, the title is A Brief... I don't know if it's in America too, but A Brief History of of, uh, of Humanity. Mm -hmm. A Brief History of Humanity. I think it's a terrific, terrific book, but it shows you how we evolved and, you know, how we became to be the modern humans that we are today. Um, what else have I read lately? I I don't know how that was going to be perceived, but I, I read a lot about Buddhism. Um I'm I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. I'm a proud. I'm proud. I'm an, I'm openly atheist. Openly atheist. I know some openly atheist because I think like athe atheism has a bad rap. Like people, oh, I'm not atheist. I'm agnostic. Like people try to mellow. No, atheist is someone who's just for the record is someone who's willing to say I don't know mm -hmm. what's out there. Uh, there's no evidence uh, for a god or this, and I'm okay with that. And I, and I want people to respect that the same way that I respect people who do believe. Someone believes, I don't think they're stupid or, or that they're wrong per se. I think, okay, 
I was led to believe that there isn't. I don't have evidence, but if you believe, that's cool. You're convinced. I'm not. I respect that. Um, but with that said, I, I do love the philosophy of religion. Um, I love Buddhism, for example. I, I read a lot about that. And it and, and it's the philosophy of it. It's not the religious mm-hmm. part of, of Buddhism. You know, uh, there's so many interpretations of that. So I read a lot about that. Um, I, I, I find... I find that very interesting. But again, it's just because you forced me to say non-art books. So, well, so I'm right there the with you. And just so that you don't feel alone, I, I'm sure. also an atheist. I would actually mm-hmm. lean more towards agnostic than atheist, but not because I'm trying to soften it, just because that's kind of how I feel. I was, sure. you know, born and raised a Christian and burned that to the ground yeah. in college and then <laughs> am sort of rebuilding the house with my own furniture. And a lot of that includes, yes. you know, aspects of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism and some Christianity in there for good measure. Sure, and sure, so, sure, sure. you know, I look at it as sort of all different paths up the same mountain, which is basically to be a good fucking person. <laughs> this is what it's about yes, right yes, now. Yes, 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 yes. And, and you know, as I grew up Jewish and um, there's a lot in Judaism that really speaks about being content, uh, talks about being a good human being. And you could literally isolate isolate those pieces of advice and, and, and practice those things. And they're, they're not easy because there are many temptations not to be a great person. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's why I, I read books that are more philosophical but but i find them to be very uh interesting and and uh, they make my life better absolutely uh favorite film wow yo this is gonna <laughs> it's a it's a new addition to the family because uh, uh a dear friend of mine for years tried to make me see it and i didn't and i saw it only in the last two years it's playtime uh playtime is a it, it was my friend Jonathan got for years tried to make me see it, and then Matthew Akers told me that's you know that's what it takes. It takes many people to tell me it's a great film until I watch it, and I watched Playtime by by Jacques Tati, and I love that film. Uh, but if I should I name more or just one? Am I? You can name is, more. Is I don't want rule? to pin you down. Um. So I like that. I I also love the conversation a lot. Um. I um. I love the film Twelve Angry Men, but because I I, I really like the story, mm-hmm. and the old the old, old the older version of it I like. Um, yeah, that's why I named those three. One one from each era. Great, no, that's wonderful. Uh, and then your favorite art book, and also maybe a recommendation to people who are interested in expanding their artistic or aesthetic knowledge. Well, if if somebody has an interest in art, is is in painting, I really love. The Art Spirit by Robert Henry. Uh, it's a collection of talks and lectures that he gave over the years. Um, and I, I love that. Um, I love conversations with Francis Bacon, with uh, Sylvester, the last name, the, I don't remember. But with, it's called Conversations with uh, Francis Bacon. And I'll squeeze one, one last book that I read recently which is a collection of interviews done with Bresson, uh, Cartier-Bresson. And, and yeah, those are, those are the few books that pop in my head. 
Those are excellent. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I like this. The last question, final question. Sure. Uh, when I started doing this show, the question was, what was the hardest time you ever fooled? And I have, wow. I have amended that question to be, hmm. when was the time you felt like your head fucking exploded astonished? Because there's a difference between not knowing how something works and actually physically feeling astonishment. So it, it's probably years and years ago uh, when I just discovered uh, Juan. And Juan came to Israel. I think I was around 15, 15 years old. And, and you know, when you're young and you just learned magic for a few years, you think you, you think know. It, oh, yeah. oh it, your confidence level is so high and you think you nailed it. And Juan came and he did magic. And we start thinking it's a stooge. No, it's a, it's a special cards. No, they're not special. Uh, it's and it was amazing. It was, it's, it was as if I knew nothing. He erased, basically, the few years of of experience I had with magic to basically to nothing. Um, but it's easy. Probably Juan has done it many times. <laughs> Juan is a very devious, you know, devious guy. Um, he's amazing, and he. Um, he made me experience it throughout the years. You know, every now and then he would do one thing and, and, and it would be very, very hard to to even begin to crack it or to understand what, what he mm-hmm. did. And so you felt the, the intense astonishment where you just felt like your brain was scrambled. It makes you feel like a layman. You say, oh, that's, oh, that's what the people feel when they see magic, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, he reminds you what it's to, what it's like to be a layman, and it, and by the way, it's a great feeling. It's a wonderful. I am envious of of people who can experience that because I think that's one of the the um, cons of being a magician is that you lose the ability to see magic with that fresh, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a treasure! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so thank much, Ansi. This was super fun. I'm f- glad we finally thank got you, to Elliot. do it. Almost, yes, almost two and years after your record. first, <laughs> your first, uh, yes, guest. You're talking about the interruption, my invasion. Yeah, the invasion. Uh, how I took, I took over uh, <laughs> Ruben's uh, podcast. Yeah, but it was fun. That was super fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, how long was it? Like three hours? Uh, I, yeah, I think it ended up being about. Oh, and almost okay. three hours. So just put this on a loop. So it feel, I won't mind to be longer. So just put it on a loop and <laughs> until it's longer. Okay, I'll figure out. I'll figure out where I can cut in here to take out the dog noises and just insert previous parts of the conversation so people just think. And people are gonna say, people are gonna say, but he said it already. <laughs> almost exactly the same way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So it's been much. a yeah, pleasure. I thank you so it. much, Elliot. Thank you. Uh, have a good All rest right. of your evening. Thank you for everybody listening to us. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to MagicalThinkingPodcast.com to hear more episodes and discover new ways to support the show. Check out ArtOfMagic.com to learn magic and cardistry, and visit ArtOfPlay.com for your playing card, board game, and whimsical interior decorating needs. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me directly at me at elliotterrell.com. That's M-E at E-L-L-I-O-T-T-T.
T-E-R-R-A-L.com, and I'll be happy to respond to any questions or comments you may have. Before you forget, head into your podcast app and leave a rating and a review for Magical Thinking. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.